welcome to a new year of My Climate Diet, the podcast where I'm shedding the pounds of greenhouse gas emissions. As always, I'm Lisa Pettibone, and today I feel more like a winner knowing how much I've lost. It's a new year, and I've been on a climate diet for 10 months now. So today I'm going to step back on the scales and see what my carbon footprint is. Have I lost weight? I sure hope so. If you're just joining me, you may want to go back and listen to the first episode of the podcast, The Way In, for all the details of my carbon footprint. But if you're like me, even if you listen to that episode, you've likely forgotten most of the details. So here are the Cliff's Notes. I started my journey by weighing in using three carbon calculators. I found out that my annual carbon footprint was about four tons in 2017. This is a great place to start, as the average German emits about 12 tons of greenhouse gases per year, and the average American about 20 tons. Still, if we want to avoid the worst effects of climate change, we have to get down to a species average of 2.8 tons per person per year by 2030. That's the maximum each of us can emit, whether you live in Bangladesh or Berlin. I started off with a low footprint, but four tons is bigger than 2.8 tons. So even I'm not there yet. Then over the course of last year, I set myself a variety of different challenges to reduce my carbon footprint. What did I do? I made my own deodorant. I changed my diet, eating local and going vegan. I changed my bank account. I dejunked a hoarder house, the childhood home of my husband. I went to a bunch of protests from Fridays for Future to Extinction Rebellion. I learned more about the climate impacts of different things. And finally, I talked a lot more about climate change and climate action. That wasn't necessarily a challenge, but that was an outcome of doing this podcast. It forced me to talk about climate change to a lot of people. And it also made me want to talk about climate change in a different way. But I'll get to that. So that sounds like a lot. Now it's time to weigh in. I weighed myself again with two of the calculators I used last year, and I have to say the results were pretty mixed. The global footprint calculator actually said that my carbon footprint was higher, 2.7 tons now versus 2.3 the last time I took it. I don't know how this happened, but it shows the to me that this calculator is a bit of a finicky thing. At the same time, it said that my global overshoot day, this is the day of the year that the planet runs out of resources if everyone were to use resources like I do, and it was December 7th, which is pretty good. I only use a little bit more than a year's worth of resources every year, not bad. On the second calculator, Nature Conservancy, my household footprint went down from 13 tons to 10 tons, or my personal footprint to 3.3 tons. Now, I don't like either of these tools as much as the CLIB calculator. That was the third one that I used last year. What's good about that one is it's based in Germany, and it also includes a figure based on my share of government emissions, as well as a level of detail that I find brings more accuracy to my calculations. Unfortunately, that calculator has been taken down, which is another reason that Germany's project-based research annoys me. 
But I think the big lesson here is that I've exceeded the usefulness of these calculators. They're nice to get a ballpark figure, something like knowing that I'm three tons versus 12 tons, and they're especially useful for someone stepping on the carbon scale for the first time. But they don't include every aspect of our footprints. I could only input the changes I made to my diet, for example, and if I'd been tracking my emissions weekly, I probably would have gotten dinged for the bus rides and subway trips to the protests. So it may be time to develop a better tool to measure my personal carbon footprint. I accept the challenge and I'll get back to you. But the bigger thing that this means is that until I develop this fantasy tool, I'm working without a scale. So I'm gonna recalculate my footprint by hand. Starting roughly where I was, let's say I emitted about four tons of carbon dioxide equivalent in 2018. So now I'm gonna add and subtract carbon from that based on changes I made last year. You may notice that when I said in the beginning what I did last year, I didn't talk at all about electricity use or transportation. Those are two big parts of the personal carbon footprint and areas where I'm already ahead of the game. For electricity, we use Greenpeace Energy, which is 100% renewable, which means my footprint here is negligible. In terms of transportation, I haven't owned a car in 20 years, and I used my bicycle a little bit more um, last year than the year before, and I didn't fly last year. So on transportation, I'm also ahead of the curve and there's not much more for me to cut. So let's look at the things I did do. And I'm gonna look at them in terms of increasing climate impact. So the first thing was that homemade deodorant. This seemed like a small change, but it's ballooned into something with a lot of additional impacts. First, my husband and I have both been using our homemade deodorant for over a year now, meaning we have saved the packaging and transportation costs of commercial deodorants. That's the small change which I calculate to about one kilogram. Not a super big deal, but better than nothing. The bigger change is that our homemade deodorant works so well that I can wear my shirts two or even three times now and often can go an extra day without showering. That I've calculated to another 10 kilograms. So although the climate impact is relatively small, 10 kilograms is about the same to eating five steaks, the full impact is 10 times greater than the savings from the deodorant alone. So what this suggests to me is that making small effective changes can have additional impact beyond the change itself. Diet. I tried to eat more local produce and cook more plant-based meals in general. I also went vegan in September. Plus, the dietary changes I made bled into those around me. Since I cook and eat vegan, my husband and son get several vegan meals a week, reducing their footprints as well. And I've shared vegan quiche, brownies, and cookies whenever I make too much. That all adds up to meaningful savings. I would say about 300 kilograms. That's about the equivalent to buying one and a half new laptops. Next, I changed my bank account. Now here, my savings aren't as great as I had hoped, 
because I still haven't closed my old bank account, which means some of the money I had planned to have in my new green bank account isn't reaping the carbon savings that I had hoped for. Still, I project I've saved about half a ton of carbon dioxide. Moving forward, I plan to close my old account this month and look into green mutual funds in the US this year as well. As I discovered over the summer, banking is an area where habitual savers like me can make a huge difference without major changes to your daily life. To put it in perspective, I reduced my footprint more by changing my bank account than by being vegan. The de-junking operation. I calculated the impacts of this to be about one ton of carbon savings. Most of this should officially go to my husband, who organized the junk and gave away or sold much of it, but I helped where I could, particularly with the yard sale, so I'm going to count it towards my carbon footprint. More on this in a minute. All of these added together makes almost two tons of carbon savings. But in addition, I did some things that are really impossible to measure. Still, I want to talk about them for a minute as well. First, I went to a bunch of demonstrations, hitting Fridays for Future, the Global Climate Strike, and Extinction Rebellion's Rebellion Week. I took my students to some of these events as well. On the face of it, this means more subway and bus trips. But protesting is an important part of our climate handprint, a necessary complement to the carbon footprint. I can't really put a number to any sense of carbon savings, but it's still important that I went. When we get meaningful government action, maybe then we can divide it by the number of people who had to take to the streets. So I can't say that my footprint is lower because I did these things, but they're definitely an important piece of the puzzle. Also important and hard to calculate is that I learned a lot about what's happening to the climate and the climate impacts of different things. Here, one of the main sources I learned a lot from is Mike Berners-Lee's How Bad Are Bananas? Now, I've worked in the field of climate policy and sustainability for 10 years now, but going on a climate diet and doing this podcast got me reading stuff I wouldn't have otherwise, which built up my baseline understanding of what climate actions matter. I would consider myself pretty knowledgeable before I started the podcast, but I was still surprised at how relatively unimportant local produce is, for example. I'm human, and I only have a limited capacity to change how I get through my day. So it helped a lot to learn what things make the biggest impact, because I had felt a lot of guilt eating things like avocados and bananas before I started this podcast. Now I know that both of those things are actually pretty good for the climate, if you're substituting them out for meat, especially. And I know where I can fudge things a bit and where it's worth it to me to hold the line. As Berners-Lee says in How Bad Are Bananas, it's all about scale. So once I knew where different things fall on that scale, it was easier to be more effective with my actions. Finally, I talked a lot more about climate change and climate action. And this is another big change for me, even as someone who gets paid to talk about this stuff in my work life. Since going on this climate diet, 
I've been more able to talk about climate action and to do so in, I think, a more effective way. One of the problems I've always had is the idea that climate action is my thing, something like a hobby, not something that everyone can and should care about. Thinking about climate action through personal change has made it more tangible and made it easier to fit little factoids into my daily conversation. Also, because I'm working on myself, I necessarily make changes that make sense for me. So they make me happier, or at least they don't hurt, which also makes it easier for me to talk to other people about them. I've gotten some great emails from listeners about changes they've made after listening to the podcast, and my friends have started asking me more about what they can do, and I felt a growing seriousness about the need to act. Finally, since I've moved from talking generally about what needs to happen to actually making changes in my life, it's built momentum among those around me to do something as well. Just yesterday, my husband came home with a climate-related challenge for us. And this is someone who has not cared historically about climate change, definitely not as much as I do. So once I got the ball rolling, I've begun to see others feel the need to act as well. Yes, business, governments, the fossil fuel industry, your boogeyman of choice needs to do something. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us can just sit back and wait. Anyway, I would guess that this podcast has caused at least several tons of carbon savings, which raises the question of how to count them. Can I take partial credit and take that carbon off my balance sheet? If I did, then those of you who actually stopped flying or changed your bank account wouldn't have it. So that doesn't seem fair. But it does seem like a topic for a future episode, how to count secondary emissions. But I can say that having these conversations has helped keep my motivation up and has no doubt contributed to the savings I saw in other areas. Now, let's add it all up. Between the different things I did last year, I think I saved at least 1.8 tons of carbon dioxide. That would take my footprint down to a measly two tons last year, which is amazing. It's also below what I need to get to by 2030. And I had a pretty great year last year. So I want to say going on a climate diet doesn't have to mean giving up things you love and suffering for the planet. Everything I did and everywhere I saved brought me joy, or at least no pain. Moving forward, this year on the podcast, I want to go carbon neutral. If humanity has 10 years to get down to 2.8 tons per person, it just won't cut it for the most sensitized of us to be at two tons. It's also time to act and to show those around us that it's possible, it's easy, and it's normal. I think that's the biggest impact I've felt since going on a climate diet, the knowledge that I've gained about what it really means to have a small footprint. And I think this also helps me talk to other people that when I say, hey, look at me, I'm a normal person and my carbon footprint last year was two tons, suddenly it's harder to argue than if you're arguing with some policy proposal that you can imagine would force you to do things you didn't want to. Now, going carbon neutral this year is going to be very hard for me because I have a major home renovation project coming up 
and my family is planning to fly to the United States for the first time in three years. So beyond finding more ways to cut my emissions, I'm going to look into ways to offset what I can't cut and figure out the question of secondary emissions. Finally, as if that weren't ambitious enough, I want to look into the more systemic changes that need to happen to avoid the worst effects of climate change. In particular, I want to spend time looking into one vision for the future, degrowth. If you haven't heard about this, it's a philosophy that says we need to move away from using economic growth to measure happiness and prosperity. While many degrowth thinkers focus on explaining why a society chasing economic growth cannot avoid climate change, others are working on positive visions of new societies that work on a different paradigm. What does a degrowth society look like? What about a personal lifestyle that follows degrowth principles? I have some ideas here, as well as several books I can't wait to read and some fascinating people I've been itching to talk to. And to show that I'm taking this seriously, I'm going to degrow this podcast. Yeah, much as I love talking about this stuff, I've found that putting out an episode every week makes it difficult to do the research and outreach that are just as important as making the episodes themselves. So I'm going to play around a bit to see if I can manage making an episode every two weeks or if I have to go down to once a month. I'll still be spending as much time with my climate diet. It'll just be more behind the scenes. I hope you'll stick around as I continue my journey. And I hope you get in touch. I love hearing from listeners, whether it's things you've learned, topics you have for me, any tips, or just a kind or even critical word. Drop me a line at lisa at myclimatediet.org or follow me on Twitter at Lisa Pettibone. What's giving me hope this week? The other day, I was looking at the sustainability documentary program at Akud Movie Theater, and I came across a new movie I wasn't familiar with. It's called The Game Changers. And I'm probably late to the party for some of you because this movie came out in the U.S. last year, but I've just become obsessed with it based on the trailer. The film follows Olympic athletes, bodybuilders, and football players who've switched to a plant-based diet to improve their performance. It's premised on the fact that although animal protein, and in particular meat, have been sold for ages as the way for real men to build muscle and stay strong, nutritional science doesn't actually bear that out. In fact, moving away from meat is what gives these top athletes an extra boost in performance. Now, what gives me hope about this movie is that it has what I'd consider a climate-friendly message without mentioning the terms climate change or vegan at all. It's basically two hours of beefcakey men and women who all say they feel better and have become better athletes since cutting animal products out of their diet. As I said in November when I talked about meat consumption, It bothers me that climate activists, for some reason, don't trust themselves to just say, go vegetarian. Well, this film, produced by Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Cameron, and Jackie Chan, screams it from the rooftops. It's finding an engaging, powerful way to advocate for climate action 
completely on personal benefits. And that's giving me hope. On the next episode, I mentioned that my husband came to me with a challenge for us yesterday. It's an anti-shopping contract in which we both agree not to buy any more books, in my case, or DVDs, in his case, until our birthdays in July. This is an interesting challenge because it goes to something we both love, and it gives me the excuse to look into climate-friendly ways to read and watch movies. So I'm going to look more into this for the next episode and see how much carbon I would save if I really did stop buying books for seven months. Until then, I wish you a low-carbon week. Thanks also to David from Kvents for letting me use his music. And thanks to you too. Since I got back from my summer of house cleaning, I've been humbled by how many people listen to this podcast. This has been a labor of love for me, and I appreciate you giving me a listen. Feel free to drop me a line with your climate tips, things you like or don't, or just a kind word at lisa at myclimatediet.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lisa Pettibone. And don't forget to rate My Climate Diet on Apple Podcasts. That makes it easier for others to find me and start their own climate diet. Because if everyone went on a climate diet, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Sunshine,